The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Um, I was going to start out by asking people to kind of volunteer what they use for social media, like are you on Facebook or TikTok or something like that, but I thought that might be a little embarrassing because then I'd have to tell you how, how many hours a week I spend on my social media apps, and then it'd just be really awkward. So what I want to do instead is just read you the numbers. So, uh, Facebook users, there are 2.912 billion monthly Facebook users as of April 2022. That is, just to put that in perspective, 36.8% of the global population. YouTube, uh, potential advertising, the way they, that's the way they identify users, the potential advertising reach is 2.562 billion people. Instagram has a potential advertising reach of 1.4 billion, which is 18.7 of the global population. And then right behind that is TikTok with 1 billion users on a monthly basis, which is 11.2% of the global population. Uh, To put that in perspective, um, the population of the largest country in the world, China, is 1.4 and change billion people. The next largest country after that is India, with 1.38 billion people. And then the third largest country is the United States, with about 330, probably 350 million people, of which we are some of them. So if you're, if you're putting those numbers together, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram would all be the largest country in the world if you were to make the YouTube country. <laughs> or the Facebook country. Um, and then TikTok, if you were to pull together all the TikTok users and make them into a country, they would be over three, they would be about three times the size of the United States population. Uh, the reason I point all this out is that so, in a certain way, it is very relevant to this passage about the Tower of Babel. We are built to want to be connected to each other. We are built to want to coalesce. We're built to want to create communities. We're built... Uh, to be together. Um, The Bible starts out by saying, you are to be in the image of God, diverse and fill the earth. That's a part of filling the earth, is being connected, but then diverse and filling the earth and expanding. It's built into the image of God that's in us to be connected to each other. Um, And I'm not saying that Facebook country uh, would be a great place to live. I mean, can you imagine... I think, I think there's some Netflix shows about what it would be like to have like an impersonated or in, in-person embodied Facebook existence, but I'm not saying it would be a great place to live, but it is, um, it is an indication of how this little device here has created more of a commonality between us that is similar to what we find in the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel we find that people that are trying to coalesce and find their identity together and in a certain sense reinforcing um, their own messaging, their own ideas about who they are and what they're for to each other. And uh, in a certain sense, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, made a prophetic statement that when a product is free, you are the product. We find that being lived out in the Tower of Babel, that even when we ourselves want what we want on our own terms, we end up making a product out of ourselves and diminish our own humanity. We begin to become less human in a certain sense. 
when we try to twist God's designs to lead them on our own terms. That's ultimately what we find in the Tower of Babel. That's what we're going to find and just kind of look through this is how these people, this is a, in a certain sense, we've as been working through the book of Genesis. We saw one fall with Adam and Eve. We saw a second fall with the, with the flood and the story of Noah. And here we find this third fall that kind of helps us explain the tapestry of the world, of why we are the way we are and why things are so messed up. We find that here in the Tower of Babel, that in the midst of their union together and what they were trying to build, their rebellion against God, God judges them. And as we saw with Adam and Eve, God's judgment is ultimately not as atrocious as we might have suspected at face value. And it is redemptive and restorative to draw us back to him. So here's the main point. By the way, um, on the bottom of all the slides, there's this number. You can text questions to that, and we do Q&A after the sermon, and I'd be happy to answer any of those questions. The main point for this morning is God graciously judges our rebellion so that we can join his global kingdom. God graciously judges our rebellion so that we can join his global kingdom. So the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to look at the first four verses in Genesis 11. And we're going to see our logical rebellion. We're going to see that there's a logic to the rebellion of Babel. There's, they're not ridiculous people. Like They actually have their, their heads on straight. They're thinking clearly. It just happens to be they're thinking clearly in a wrong way, and they all like it. Seems very familiar for us. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with this top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face, over the face of the whole earth. So first things first, what's the whole deal with this tower? Like, I'm sure that we all have in our own heads kind of like, what does a tower in the ancient world look like? I mean, maybe it's kind of like a skyscraper, like we've got downtown here in Manchester. You know, we, we think of towers and we think of like the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something. At least I do. I'm just telling you what I think about when I think of towers. But in the ancient world, um, there was a very def- definite idea of what a tower was. It's called a ziggurat. So a ziggurat is this ancient tower. It's kind of like an old pyramid. Like we see pyramids all over the world. And so can we throw up this first kind of picture here? This is a picture of of an archaeological dig that has revealed the base of uh, a ziggurat. A ziggurat, you can see for scale, um, there are people there at the top. That's the little people at the top there. So a ziggurat would have been very similar to this. It would have, this maps onto what an ancient ziggurat was. If I recall correctly with the dates I was looking up, this is probably what one would have looked right around 2000 BC, so around 4,000 years ago. Can we go to the next slide? Is more of like an, an artist's sketch of... A ziggurat. So you can see how this maps onto what a ziggurat will look like. This is what a ziggurat looked like. It was similar to a kind of a pyramid-esque thing, but basically it's a tower that starts out big at the bottom and goes way up to the top. And as a, as the verse says here, let us um, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. In the Babylon, Babylonian world, this had a very particular purpose. If you kind of recall your Greek mythology or anything that you know, you know that, that in the ancient world, people assumed um, the mountains are really high up in the sky. Gods live in the sky, and so they need a house too. So their houses must be at the top of mountains. I mean, it, that makes sense. 
you know, they, they, they live at the top of these mountains. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build our own mountain so that they can live on our mountain. So the top of the ziggurat, you'll notice that it's painted blue. Well, what is the sky? What, what does the, the ceiling of a god's house in the sky look like? Well, it's blue because the sky's blue. So they would have painted blue, and they would have had like a couch and like a you know a bed, and would have had all like the, the furnishings of a house at the very top to basically be like, here's a free rent for you gods to come and live in, come live in our apartment here. Built it at the top, and then down here, kind of towards the, the middle bottom, would have been a temple where the gods would have then lived at the top, and they would occasionally come down, and they would live with people, and they would receive their worship, people would go and access the god and worship them. And they would have put this in the very middle of the city so that basically the entire city is blessed by the presence of this God. So that the God and all the good things that come with being a God bless the city. Now we look at that, we're kind of like, man, that's ridiculous. However, I will note, it's not much different than any city building, you know, a stadium. And they're, or having like their own football or baseball team or something like that. All, you think about like all the countries in the world where they try to buy for the Olympics. We want this here because of what it does for our economy. It's, it's basically the ancient version of that. But what it meant is that when they built this, we can go back to the first slide because we're all going to keep looking at this and evaluating where we would live and how many steps there are and how hard it would be to climb to the top. In the old world, this would have been basically, we want to make sure that we're safe, that we're provided for, that we want God on our terms. So when we look at these verses, what we're looking at is them basically saying, you know what, this world, you have to remember, they would have just seen the flood in recent memory, washed everything away. Here they are building from nothing. And they are in the midst of this desert trying to find some peace and security. And so what's the best way to find peace and security? Well, just like if you live down in Florida, you build your houses on stilts. We're gonna build something really tall, keep us away from the floodplain, we're going to get God on our terms and we're going to get God's things so that we can have them in our own way all the time. And you can imagine there's some kind of keys in here already that you're like, this is not going to go well. Right? You have to remember the original audience. The real audience would have been these Egyptians who were enslaved for 300, 400 years. And when they read here that they made bricks, right? this would be like talking about cotton for African-American slaves who had just been freed. They had just been saved from 400 years of making bricks. And here we have the bad guys in the story making bricks. It would have immediately oh, there's something bad going down here. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. So what exactly is the sin going on in this passage? Making a city? I don't think so. I don't think the city is a sinful part. Um, is it building a tower to compete with God? The arrogance? Yeah, I think so. I think some of it's there. Um, is it, you know, in a certain sense, trying to get God on their own terms? I think that's a part of it. But it's this last clause I want to draw us into. And let us make a name for ourselves, right, the arrogance, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We talked about in Genesis 1 and 2 how they were made, we are made in the image of God, 
And last week we drew from Genesis 10. We are made in the image of God to spread to the whole earth. And then God saves Noah and all of his sons. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth. And then here we come into Genesis 11. And they're saying, we want God on our own terms. And we're not going to get spread over the whole earth. We're going to stay together. In a certain sense, their logic is their strength in numbers, right? The more we stick together, the more we're safe, right? God has just said, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And yet, God, we're going to make sure that we've got some safety against your promises falling through. We've got a backup plan in case you don't pull through on that. So God, instead of just kind of trusting that you're not going to judge the whole earth, we're going to make sure we've got you on our terms. We're going to stick here together. We're going to camp out in the same place, right? This is ultimately... This is the logic of their rebellion against who God is and its purposes for them and in a certain sense for us. Right? We could easily list all the ways in which we have a Tower of Babel in our own day. Right? All the ways in which we try to find comfort, the ways in which we try to find support, safety, provision, freedom. You think of all these values that are important to our humanity and the way we live, getting them all on our own terms and securing them so that uh, whether God comes through or not, We've got them. You can't fault me for just pointing out that, bro, Elon Musk just spent $44 billion on a Tower of Babel, right? Because how many languages and people are represented there? There's actually, on a monthly basis, 330 million people who use Twitter alone. And you've got the Google Translate, so everybody can kind of talk to each other and all that stuff on something that doesn't exist. Like, Twitter is not a place that you go. Twitter is a thing on your phone that uses you. But we all have our own ways, whether we're Elon Musk or you're just some guy on the street, that we all try to get God on our own terms. God, I I don't think you're going to pull through, so I'm going to make sure that I set up as many provisions in place. Or, God, you're not pulling through, and I need to escape the pain of my life. So I need to set up security options of I'm going to have these drinks on Friday night to kind of relax from the week because it was really bad. And that turns into a whole bender of the weekend. You see, when we try to figure out how to get God's things in our terms, we begin to do a battle. And we twist God's world to be on our terms. There is a logic to building this tower. Right? Nobody... Nobody wakes up in the morning, I've said this before, but nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what, those Ten Commandments, I think I'm going to break up today. Nobody wakes up and says, I really want to murder. I really want to lie. You know what, I'm really thinking, coveting my neighbor's stuff, like that's really what I want. Today, I'm going to wake up, just seems like a great idea to me. That's not the way we work. We work like the Tower of Babel. God, these are your good things but you're not giving to me on my terms as quickly as I want, as efficiently as I want, as thoroughly as I want. But that's safety, comfort, provision. Right? These are all good things. Right? It's good to want to feel safe like these people in this tower of battle. But they did it contrary to God's design and they talked each other into it. Right? I will say that as I've helped people work through their own repentance and obedience to God as we work through how do we get here? How do we get to this place of rebellion against God? It was all small things along the way. 
where you get here. This is one of the reasons why regular, unhurried community in Jesus is so incredibly helpful. We're going to get to that in a second. But they're just trying to point out here. This is the logic of the rebellion. What exactly is going on? So, we're going to pick up here in verse 5. What happens with God's judgment? What's going on here? So, God's merciful judgment. We looked at the law, our logical rebellion. It makes sense. We don't exactly wake up thinking, I want to build a tower to compete with God. But we have things that go on in our lives. We make small decisions. Slowly replacing God out of the way so we can have God's things in our terms without God himself. Because God's a little bit, you know, he's his own person. God's merciful judgment, verse 5 to 8. And the Lord came down to see the city of tower, the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. I just want to pause just to point out just a couple things here. This is probably one of my most, my favorite, like, comedic moments in the Bible. Where we're like, we're going to build this huge tower. And God just kind of like, oh, what, what are you doing down there? i got to get down on my hands and knees to see what's going on. It's just like, they put all this effort in. He just kind of has to, like, get down on his hands and knees and, like, use a microscope to see what's going on. But also, just in terms of like how the story is written, um, it, it, there's this literary term called a chiasm, which basically means the story starts out in one direction, and its main point is in the middle. And this verse, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built, is the middle point. That's the focus of this passage. What is God doing? He's coming down to see. Their arrogance has said, we're going to compete with God and get God on our terms, and we're going to do all this work, and God's like, got to go down to see this. This is an incredible sight that I have to get down so far to see. It's so small. It's just a funny moment to me. I know that that's free. That's not anything special. Um, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. You'll notice what God doesn't do, right? He goes after their language, but he doesn't go after them, right? They, they, they have rebelled against God, and they have one language, but he goes after their tool. He doesn't necessarily, like, he doesn't, you know, zap them off the face of the earth, because here they are, they're, they're literally building a mountain to compete with God, and he doesn't zap them off the face of the earth, he just comes in and just says, okay, different languages. He doesn't destroy them. And he doesn't destroy the tower. Like we read the story in our minds, we, we have like this wreckage of a tower and this plane. But he did, at the end of verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth. They all left off building the city. It's, I mean, you can imagine, they wake up one day, they can't all understand each other. And they're all like, um, I'm, I only know English. So, you know, do you speak Spanish? Do you speak English? And they can't understand each other. And are like, well, we can't do this build site anymore. And they just kind of like walk off. You can imagine, like, they, they, God hasn't destroyed their work. He's just confused their language. It's fascinating to me that, that in the midst of all of this, that we can see that there's a rejection of God. He's very merciful in how he judges them. But I want to draw your attention to, because we can under, misunderstand I think a little bit of what's going on here. Verse 6, you'll notice it says in this, um, Behold, there are one people, and they'll have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And there is nothing that they propose to do that will now be impossible for them. Is this basically God saying, like, I don't want them to explore space, so let me hamper, ha- hamper them so they can't do cool stuff. 
Like that, it's not what this verse is about. Is this basically saying, like, God, is God threatened by their capacity to build this tower? I don't think that, that's how, it, when, I, when I read it face value, that's what it seems to me. It's, it almost seems kind of like God's a little nervous. But I think what's going on in this verse here, I think what's going on under the, under the tone here is that the Lord is basically saying, if this is what they are able to do to try to get me out of their lives, this is not good for them. And he is concerned, he's troubled by what would happen to humanity if they were able to go unchecked. If they were able to do everything that their heart wanted to do to get God out of our lives, God is concerned about what that would do for us. In effect, they would build up a delusion. This is uh, R. Kent Hughes. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in the end of the delusion, they would never turn to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable and irredeemable. Right? In effect, what God is doing in this judgment is he is protecting them from themselves. <laughs> right? He's saying, when it says... Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I mean, just think of all the ways in which we've seen ourselves or with others around us. They're like, man, if they do not have, my dad would call it a come to Jesus talk. If they don't have some sort of self-awareness, this is bad. This does not lead to good things. This is, in effect, God saying, you need to be safe from yourself. And so what he does Rather than blasting them off the face of the earth, he just, you guys won't be able to understand each other. A little confusion in there. A little disruption so that there's not so much uniformity between you. So that you're left confused and having to wonder and depend and ask. Right, this is how God's, judge, God's merciful judgment works. I think this is what we see in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Right, God says, you will surely die. And yet... His mercy prevents them from physical death. There's a spiritual death that happens. But they are still provided for. And here, there is a judgment that comes. And yet that judgment is to draw them towards God himself. Right? I think this is how the Bible lays out God's judgment in our lives. This side of hell, judgment is always redemptive and restorative. To draw us back to him. Right? This is, I think, this sense of oh, I need to be saved from myself. I need God's help to be saved from me. Right? We, we could probably all compare notes on how we've experienced this. Right? There was my, my last job. I was a computer technician. I was building stuff. and I, just, I don't know why, but I would just occasionally be like a real jerk and dismissive jerk to folks like in my workplace. And I had a, a co-worker of mine who was very kind and just kind of said, hey, um, why are you really mean to Ted? I don't know. He always interrupts me. You're a technician. That's what you're supposed to do. Like, you're supposed to be interrupted to do stuff for other people. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know why. But it wasn't like, hey, Jacob, I think you should be fired because you're being rude to Ted. I don't even remember what the guy's name was. But, no, it was, in a certain sense, a correction towards, oh, a respectful, engaging way to engage with other people, kind of Ted. He's just trying to do his best with his job. This is a small example of all the ways in which we begin to kind of fill that out of coming to our senses about who we are so that we don't receive the brunt edge of judgment 
we actually are guided back towards God and his purposes for us, we receive his kindness, right? What I experienced in that moment at work, it was embarrassing, right? To be called out at work, hey, uh, don't be a jerk. Yeah, that's embarrassing. Um, it was uncomfortable and it was correct. But in a certain sense, it drew me out of myself because I was beginning to shrivel as a person in how I treated other people. Babel, largely, is a story about people who built something big on the outside. And because they were walking contrary to God's purposes, were shrinking on the inside. They were refusing God's design to spread. They were refusing God's design to trust him. And so in the midst of building this huge tower, they were shrinking on the inside. C.S. Lewis has this great little line in his book, in the Narnia series, The Last Battle, In our world, too, a stable once had something inside that was bigger on the inside than the whole world. This is what God does for us when he leads us into repentance in Jesus. In the rubble of our lives, we begin to experience the wholeness of God on the inside. While on the outside, our lives may be falling apart. While on the outside, we may need to be being led into judgment or repentance. And yet, on the inside, God himself dwells with us and leads us to being more full in him. I am going to skip over all my commentary on social media. Just to say that it does horrible things to our humanity in the ways it causes us to treat each other. But if you have questions about it, you can text me. (laughs) I will answer them. I just want to point us out here to the end of this passage, and we'll close with this. Verse 9. God's dispersed mercy. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And what I want to do here is just to pick this verse up and then I just kind of throw it through the rest of the Bible. And there's a couple things that I want to pull out for us as we look at this. The first is if we were to just go back to Genesis 10, we were to notice that it said there at the, beginning, at the end of Genesis 10 that Eber was born to him, had two sons, and there was one whose name was Peleg, and his, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jotham. This is the, the name Peleg, who was divided, is referring to this event here in Genesis 11, where they all disperse over the whole earth. But it's interesting that that word used there for divided is not a common word that's used. It's a word that comes up a few times in the Old Testament. But I want to point it, uh, I want to draw your attention back to Acts 2 where we ended last week and point out a couple key things. And you're going to begin to see this. I think it's fairly obvious. The beginning of Acts 2, right? Jesus has been resurrected. And that's what the verses are in terms of what we were reading earlier in in the service. Jesus has been resurrected, and people are, are seeing and experiencing and waiting for the Spirit. So here we are in Acts 2. Jesus said, wait for the Spirit to come. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Hmm. That sounds a lot like Genesis 11. They were all in one place, weren't they? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were, where they were sitting, almost kind of like God himself coming down to the Tower of Babel. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. See, what happens is that when Jesus arrives and fills his people with his spirit, it takes the Tower of Babel and flips it on its head so that even key words like the divided spirit, that's the same word that was used over in Genesis 10. The spirit was divided over them. God comes down and he fills them with his spirit so that now, rather than in Babel where they were speaking in one language, they were speaking in one language and the judgment was they were speaking in tongues. Now in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and gives us multiple languages, whether that's speaking in tongues or just meeting us where we are in our own ethnic background so that we can then speak in one unified message, Jesus is King, right? That's the end of Acts 2. That's what they go towards. At the end of Acts 2, they're all celebrating who God is and what he's done for them in Jesus rather than a God that needs to be ascended to heaven to get. Here we have in Jesus a God who comes down from heaven to dwell among us and be with us and whose son has received the very judgment we deserve so that we walk as people who are identified by mercy. The thing that identifies us in Jesus are not all the things that we can accomplish. It's not that we can build some fantastic monument. But in fact, it is that we are all people in this room. We sit under the blessing and banner of mercy. We receive something that we could never have earned for ourselves, and yet God himself is eager to give it to us, and he identifies us as people from all different types of backgrounds who have one merciful king. Let me just pick up one other thread here in Genesis 11 to see this again as we walk through, as we close things out. In Genesis 11, there's this word that keeps using, it's called dispersed. Right there in Genesis 10, it was used that the nations were spread abroad. It's the same word as dispersed. It was used in Genesis 11:4 for what they didn't want. They didn't want to be dispersed. Right, and then here in Genesis 11, our final verses in this section, the Lord dispersed them over the whole face of the earth. And then we find what does First Peter call us as people who are one in Jesus to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. We are identified with people who are dispersed throughout the whole world under one king whose banner is mercy and compassion, forgiveness and grace for people who do not deserve it. Right? We are people who by our own nature would want to build a kingdom for ourselves, a tower for our own way to get God on our own terms, to keep God on our own terms, to have a little house for God so that he could kind of live and kind of do his own thing. And then when we needed things from him, and got things from them, we can kind of just go like a genie in the bottle and just kind of rub them, get things we want, and put them back. But rather than that, God saves us from our small version of ourselves, our small version of God, and gives us the fullness of his heart. And then not only that, he gives us the whole world to be dispersed among and to experience him in and to walk among as people who are identified with one king under many nations and tribes and tongues and people. Right? As each of us want... Security, safety, comfort, provision. God himself says, I am happy to talk about those things. But let's first reckon between you and me. You need me as your primary message. You need me as your king, not yourself. Because if you remember, if you continue to have yourself as your king or queen of your own heart, 
you will continue to find that you have built babbles and snuck them into your own hearts in one way or the other. But God himself comes to dethrone ourselves from our hearts so that we can have Jesus, a merciful king, who provides for us, who's eager to be for us everything that we need so that we can have Jesus and not worry about being in control. We can have Jesus and know that he is going to provide for us. We can have Jesus and know that safety will come at his hands. We can have Jesus and know that through the rest of the days of our lives, there's going to be many things that we face that are scary and uncomfortable. But yet, Jesus is always with us to provide for us. And you'll notice, 1 Peter goes on to talk about them being living stones. There's a sense in which God loves that each one of us is unique for him, just like a stone. Rather, in the Tower of Bravo, they were all bricks. They ought to be uniform. Each one of us is going to have our own story, what that looks like, for what it means to experience God's goodness together. What it looks like for us. But each one of these will be the experience of a king who comes down to live among us, to be a diverse people in his global kingdom. So let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage and considered who you are for us, we ask you to continue to lead us through the moments of uncomfortable judgment at times, correction, but more importantly, God, so that we would experience your grace to be a part of your global kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.